I just relocated back to Brooklyn. I still have uh, a place in LA, but I'm I'm mostly living uh, in Brooklyn with uh, my fiance. I got engaged. Yeah, muscle tough. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's cosmically funny to be uh, doing a press tour about a breakup record. <laughs> Well, I should be clear. It's not a lot. Uh, it wasn't the songs weren't written. Some of the songs were, but a lot of the songs were not written in the shadow of the breakup. It was recorded in the. So it's it's kind of become a breakup record on some level, like almost energetically. But it wasn't. I didn't sit down and write twelve songs in the in the ashes of a breakup. I just want to be clear about that. So I mean, it sounds like things happened really quickly then, in terms of like relationship wise. <laughs> yeah, if you want to, if you want to just talk about my relationship timeline in the last year and a half, you could do I that. I don't have to dwell on it. But, you know, <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the relationship ended at the end of uh, you know, kind of like around Thanksgiving, and kind of uh, it. You know, you know, these things take a little time, but there was a kind of definitive thing. And then I I was kind of in exile from my house in L.A. and I. I, I was in Columbus, Ohio, kind of laying low. And then my buddy Kyle Cox, who's a great Nashville songwriter, good friend, he was like, come, you know, you don't have anywhere to be. <laughs> like, come to Nashville. Let's record some songs. And I, and I didn't know the scope of the project or anything, but I, I rented an Airbnb and I, I took my dad's car and my dog Nelson was with me and uh, just went to Nashville and spent a month there and made this record. And um during that time is when I met uh, my fiance. I, I went up to uh, to New York for this um, like psychedelic sound ceremony weekend, and and that's where I met her. And uh, you know, so so it, it, it's kind of like got this cool kind of death and rebirth kind of feel to it. Like like it started in a pretty low place and it ended uh, in a really special place. Um, you know, there's a skeleton on the cover of the album who's kind of dancing and it feels that feels right to me. Everything that you just described to me is, is romantic for different reasons, you know, like getting in a car with your dog and driving down to Nashville to record a record. It's almost like a cliche out of like a piece of fiction. It's just so perfect. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it sounds like I'm trying to create some lore around it, but it's literally how it happened. You know, I was really, angry and sad and stuck. And then my friend just extended this kind of lifeline and he was like, let's, let's make some art. Let's make some music. You know, it's, I, I, I find you, you end up with these, there are crossroads moments in your life and you can either say yes or no. And I felt like it was just such a better use of my time to throw myself into making music. It was, it was healing. It was fun. It was, um, it, 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 it also made me feel like were it not for this breakup, were it not for me not being able to be at my house in LA, I wouldn't have been in Nashville. I wouldn't have had the impetus to go there maybe. So it felt like something was being orchestrated, uh, on my behalf. I mean, I don't know you know, we could debate, you know, what hand was involved. If it's, if it's luck, fate, I don't know, but, but it was, um, it was the right moment for me to be making this record for sure. When you say crossroads to me, that implies that, that there was a choice, but in this case, was there any reason not to go to Nashville and start making music? Um, no, I, no, I, I, I shouldn't say I didn't hesitate that long other than, um, 
the kind of voice in my head that always tries to stop me from doing anything good. This is the imposter syndrome voice, maybe? Yeah, or the, you know, I had never made a full-length record without Ben Lee, and uh, I made this, you know, five-song EP. I recorded a lot of songs with my buddy Ryan Dillmore back in L.A., but... I think that I I was nervous to work with new producers, even though I knew these guys and liked these guys. I just didn't know. Every collaboration is a risk, you know, and it, and it just felt immediately once I got there, I was like, oh, these are the guys I want to be hanging out with. These are the guys I want to be making music with. Yeah, that's fair. When you're working with somebody like Ben Lee, you can't stray too far from the path if he's around. He, he's always there, I think, to keep you in check. Well, he was also such a steady hand and such a repository of information and experience. So I'd be like, what? I mean, some of the things I understood how to do intuitively and other things I was like, what did you just say? Like, what is that? I don't know what that mic is. Or I don't know. You know, he I I really got um, this incredible. I got to do a collaboration where we were really 50 50, really equally participating in it. And I got this kind of like unbelievable songwriting apprenticeship for all these years of just being able to. um, And, you know, I got to play guitar like way sooner than I should have in professional context. I got to I got to be up on stage with Ben and I we'd tell the the sound guy, like, keep my guitar real way down. And I would just look at Ben and try to like match his strumming pattern. So I got to I got to really do it. In, in a way quicker than I than I should had any right to be, but it served me, you know? So there was a little bit of fear going into this then? Oh, yeah. Immense fear. I mean, there's fear releasing it. I, 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 I've just decided that fear is a constant companion and... It can either hinder you or, or be a motivator depending on if you... Yeah. Like and I have this relationship with my fear where it's like I acknowledge it. Sometimes it pops my eyes open at three in the morning and and wants to be heard, but I don't want it to win and I don't want it to stop me from doing cool things in the world. I don't want it to, uh, yeah, I don't want to be paralyzed by it. So I have to, it's not an adversarial relationship. It's more of like, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I'm going to go ahead with this anyway. I suspect, you know, that, that you've done enough, you did enough of these with Ben, and now you've got the soul record coming out that maybe, maybe your past, I know this isn't a rational thing as I'm saying it, but maybe you're past that sort of initial worry of being actor guy who's suddenly in a band or suddenly playing music, that like that cliche. And now, you know, you're through the looking glass, right? I mean, you've been doing this long enough now that you're a musician, I mean, that's great to hear. It's not, that's not to say I don't get hit with, you know, I, I make a joke that like the, the actor to musician pipeline is a lot more treacherous than the musician to actor pipeline, which seems to have more success to it. I think that's right. People give you a lot of leeway when you're a musician acting. Yeah. And some, some musicians have had some real success with it. You know, there've been some real there've been some great kind of musician turned actors. And I think the going the other way is tougher. I would say many actors want to be musicians, you know, uh, it wasn't always an ambition of mine. I think I came to it, um, pretty purely and, um, you know, I just consider myself a, a, a storyteller uh, and, you know, I participated in nine year stories. I've, I've done 90 minute stories and these are like three to four minute stories that I get to tell. And, uh, the older I'm getting, I just, um, 
you know, sometimes when I act these days in other people's stuff, which I still do a, a, a lot of, and I, and I, I can find some enjoyment in it, but sometimes there's something so weird about being my age and wearing clothes that aren't mine and saying like, my name is Jeff for the day. And it, you know, it, there's just something like the older I'm getting, I really want to be more myself and say my own words. I, I think that, you know, at some point, you know, when I was younger, I didn't, I maybe didn't have a lot to say. You know, I think I say that in one of my songs, you know, I wish I'd started doing this in the nineties, but I'm not sure I had much to say. But you probably thought you had a lot to say. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I certainly wasn't as prolific a writer. I was more interested in like doing, you know, a David Mamet play or something. Like mm-hmm. I, I wanted to give voice to other people. And now that I've, I, I'm older, I've been, I've been, I've had some failure. I've had some success. I've been, I've been kicked around. I've, 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 uh, you know, experienced a lot of like love and friendship and transformation. And I just feel. Like I now, I actually have something to say and I, and I feel more confident in, in my voice. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, that I still get haunted by the, oh God, you know, <laughs> what's he doing? Like, why is he doing this? Like there are any, anything you're afraid of in your, in your, you know, middle of the night terror, someone will come out on social media and confirm that for you. So you just have to, I, that's the cost of doing business, you know, in the modern world. Like you just have to kind of like take your, take your punches. And, uh, and sometimes I think that that's kind of like, oh, we're here. We're actually doing this. Like there's something cool about it. When you're actually doing something, people will come out and say they hate it and they hate you and you should stop. And then there are, there are many other people that say not that, that actually encourage you and want you to keep moving forward. So you just got to be careful about who you listen to. The people who, are not going to encourage you are probably not the people who are showing up at shows. You know, people, people are no. paying the door price to boo you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you got to go where it's warm. You know, you mentioned that the nine year story, um, I'm assuming you're referring to the fact that you were on a, a television show for roughly <laughs> that length of time. Yeah. Um, as it drew to a close and you were looking at what was next, did, did you, did you stop acting? Did you want to stop acting for a little while and just try something completely different? No, I mean i i act i've never i haven't stopped acting in the last nine years at all. I've done you know a ton of plays. I I, I went right into a Broadway play right after I ended How I Met Your Mother for nine months, and I I've done a bunch of series that have gone you know one or two or three seasons, but nothing on the scale of How I Met Your Mother. And I was also. Um, I think that it's okay to go away for a while. I think that there's some actors, especially they're so afraid of a moment where they're not kind of doing something publicly or they're so afraid. Now I, I, uh, you know, I did a PBS show for two seasons about the civil war called mercy street. And it was an unbelievably good high quality show, but you know, the teenagers in Portugal who were watching how I met your mother, like weren't watching that. So they're like, where'd you go? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm in Richmond, Virginia, filming this TV show. (laughs) Like, I, I, all I knew was I didn't want to repeat myself again. Like any role that came along that was like, you know, lovesick single guy in New York City looking for love or like, I just, I, I got offered some of those roles, but I was like, I, I have to do something that feels different that ages me up a little bit. Cause even by the end of How I Met Your Mother, I was like, 
I, I don't, I, I have, uh, grown faster than this guy, you know? So whereas I started out feeling maybe more aligned with him by the end, I was like, wow, I, I need to do things that feel like that, that are more aligned with kind of where I am. And so, you know, music, right. I, you know, I wrote and directed two films while I was doing how I met your mother and it just, music became a way to be creative. I, I've, I've always hated, you know, being an actor, they got to call you off the bench. You can't just wake up one morning and be like, I'm going to act today. You know, like you have to get permission to do it. And I just hated the powerlessness of that. That's why I became a writer and a songwriter, um, because I can wake up and be creative every day. And that's, that's really what I want to do. You hated a certain element of it, but as you said, you never really stopped doing it and, and you're still doing it. There must still be something there that you love. Yeah. I just wanted to broaden my, possibilities of how to be a creative person, you know, like I really love being behind the camera and at the monitors and wearing my own clothes and not being the person in the front and center. And, uh, you know, I love, uh, playing songs for people live. Like I, some days I want to be creative a little more from, you know, behind the scenes and other days I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll be out, I'll be out front, but I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not hungry for, to have all eyes on me all the time. Like there are actors and I actually admire these people in some weird way where they're like, they're really comfortable, like putting on the clothes and going to the award shows and doing the carpet and doing, I'm just, I'm, 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 I've never made peace with it. It's, it's always a, it always costs me something, you know, I come home and I feel like I got to smudge myself with sage or something like I just need to come back to myself. And uh, I'm just trying to find what feels the most authentic. And some of it, again, is the cost of doing business. But I, 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 I've just never been one of those people that's like, I wanted to be looked at all the time. Sometimes I, you know, the, the, the richest part of my life is the, is private. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need it even though I try to write really authentically about what's going on, I don't need to um, expose my life and myself all the time. There's an element of that. That's, that's inevitable. Um, you know, in that, again, like we're, we're talking about th this record and, and in the press material around it, it, men it mentions the breakup aspect, which is, you know, how, how I'm aware of that. It, there is an element of when, when you are putting art into the world, you can't, a lot of artists would love to let the art solely speak for itself, but at the end of the day, like people want to know these things about you and you have to figure out what part of yourself you're willing to share with the world. Yeah. And sometimes I think an artist can um, have a take on what they made that is maybe less resonant and deep than what the audience got. So you can actually constrict your art by talking about it too much. I mean, I think there's a, kind of thing where you can say like, well, this is what inspired this, or this is what it's going for. But when, when it goes out into the world and people get a hold of it, it becomes theirs. It becomes, you know, you, you have to surrender your own ownership of it and let people do with it what they will, you know? And, uh, and I'm okay with that. You know, um, I, I, I know what these songs mean to me, but they also change, you know, they change as I change. Um, I remember talking to um, Rachel Yamagata, who's a friend, about, like, what do you do with love songs that you wrote for people who you're no longer in relationships with? 
And she's like, you know, they just become about something else or someone else or, you know, they, 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 they morph, you know, they're no longer about this one person. They're about something. They, they become more cosmic in some way. I completely understand what you're talking about from, from the love perspective, but you know, the flip side of it is what do you do with a breakup song? You're very literally carrying that around with you. And I'm not saying that a breakup song doesn't have a, you know, the, the, the opportunity to evolve, but there will always be a piece of that person and that moment in that song. Yeah. But I, I think in some ways that's, that's like, we can't undo our past, right? Like we are this, we are the sum total of our experiences and our relationships. And, you know, I don't have, I, I, I feel like I'm in a really sweet, lovely, complicated, nice time of my life. And I think when you get to that kind of place, even a good day where you say, you know, this was a good day, you almost have to like turn around and bless everything that led up to it. Like, like all the twists and turns and all the regrets and the, 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 um, the folly and the relationships that, that, you know, despite your best efforts didn't work out. And I think a breakup song, you know, it's almost like a scar on your body, right? Like, it's like this one I got here and this one I got here, (laughs) you know, you can kind of point to, you know, the, the laugh lines around your, your eyes or whatever. Like there's, there, there's something, there's something I like about, about, uh, having a history, you know, like having some looking behind you and saying like, wow, I've traveled, I'm pretty high up this mountain. I've still got some, some to go. And, and, you know, I think you also have to take care of yourself in some ways. Like I, I, I read this interview with Julianne Baker, who I really admire. I think she's a great songwriter and seems like a cool person. I don't know her, but she was talking about, you know, her first two records, they were such, you know, kind of the nerve endings on those songs were just so exposed. And then she realized how long she'd have to be touring these songs. And she was like, do I want to be in this space every night? Like, like it kind of lightened up her songwriting in some ways. Cause it was like, she had to protect herself as she took these songs on the road. Um, I hope I'm, 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 I'm not misunderstanding what she said, but it was, it was something along that line, those lines. And I get that. It's funny to be talking about lightening up songwriting and then, talking about this album that I I think the way you put it is that everything is about death in one way or another on this record. Yeah. But death in a broad context, right? Like death of a chapter in your life, the end of a relationship and, end, you know, an end of a version of yourself that served you up to a point and then has to be kind of retired. And then there's the, the fact of, of death and mortality, which is always looming, you know Um, which I think we're, we're in a death phobic culture and I think it serves us to put that a little more at the front of our minds. I think the, you know, this is a, in, in a lot of ways, this is a midlife album because it's really reckoning with like where I've been and where I'm going. It's kind of like a pause to say, okay, I've had all these experiences and I've, I've, you know, I've hurt some people. I've been hurt. I've, uh, like I said, I've had some success. I've had some failure. And, um, it's kind of a midlife reckoning of saying like, I don't have all the time in the world left. You know, I think one of the, one of the, the bet, you know, um, 
one of the best parts of youth, which I don't even, you know, it's wasted on the young, right? Like, I don't think when you're young, you understand that you're actually mortal because it just feels like you got all the time in the world. And then you turn 40 and it's baffling. You're like, how did I turn 40? Like, I don't understand this. I was 19 two days ago, you know? So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to reconcile that with myself and also, you know, sing about it in such a way that it, that it invites the listener in to, you know, maybe reflect on their own kind of, uh, curious relationship with time. I mean, time is, uh, really mind-fucky thing, you know? Funnily enough, I, I was speaking with uh, Roger Eno earlier this week. He gives sermons and speeches at people's wakes, and it's yeah. the same. It, this is exactly what you're talking about. About um, and, and this might, in, in some ways, this might be like a very profoundly American thing of just, you're right, like completely pushing death out of our lives. And, and when people get to a certain age, you know, like, putting them in the home and taking taking them out of the house but certainly you know he's he's a he's a man in his i think late 60s 70s and certainly his relationship with mortality i would think would be different than you know somebody in their 40s right yeah i mean the the good news is if you're if you're lucky enough to live into your eighties, let's say, or nineties, like you're going to hit all these mileposts, you know, and, and it doesn't mean I don't, I don't think that age confers wisdom. I think that's a fallacy. I think wisdom is something that you are, are open to and you have to metabolize certain lessons. And some people don't do that. And they, they become control freaks and they become really bitter and angry and shut down. But other people that I've watched age and I really admire these people, they seem to become more open and, and less guarded and, and more curious and fascinated with, uh, with the world and less kind of combative, you know, they're more interested in service and, 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 uh, you know, just being more compassionate because, you know, they've been dinged up themselves. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming to the end of my forties. I'm really curious about what my fifties will look like. It's like, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in these markers that are, um, you know, aging, look, it, it's a bummer the body slowing down, you know, the, the, the body changing, like it, there's some bummers with it, but there's, a, there should be, I think enough wisdom and grace to offset the rigors of aging if we're doing it right. You did a track by track breakdown, and uh, w- one of the stories behind the songs really rang true to me because I'm currently I, I had to buy a cane recently because I'm dealing with some sciatica, and yeah. you know, knowing that like you know it, it's a herniated disc and it's sciatica, knowing that these things are going to be temporary, but then all of these things that should be very obvious to you dawning on you because you're certain, suddenly going through this health thing in a way that you hadn't before. And it, you know, I. It sounds like perhaps you were dealing with something similar. You had discussed the back issues that you were going through at the yeah. time that basically birthed the song. Yeah, yeah, that was. Um, I think it was like right before my forty sixth birthday. I was forty five, turning forty six, and um, uh, my birthday. I've always been a little weird around my birthday. I get a little squirrely. I don't, I don't know. I, I know a lot Very of people. melancholy. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. The same thing happens to me. It's like, it's, it's, it's weirdly like my least favorite time of the year. Um, the actual birthday ends up being okay, but the, 
the kind of lead up to it and the reflection it causes. And I, my back went out in a way that it had never gone out like a real freaky kind of needed some real assistance and some, uh, shots and stuff. Um, and, it, and when I started writing that song, it wasn't even as bad as it got, but, um, you know, the first line of that song is, um, you, uh, what is it? You feel like you are 17, your back says you are 45. At least it does this morning, you know? And, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the, the history of, of rock and roll is very, and I don't know this, this isn't really a proper rock record, but it's, um, so much of pop music is youth focused, you know, and I, I, I just think there's something interesting about writing about limitation. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge Nick Cave fan. I don't know if you get his um, red hand files. He does this weekly email. It's the best thing you'll read every week. It's like, it's, they're free to subscribe, but he has a book. Uh, he was interviewed by a, a journalist, an Irish journalist. Um, it's called Faith, Hope and Carnage. And he's, you know, he's lost now two children. He was a heroin addict. He's sober. He's just like, he's been to the dark side and he's emerged with some real wisdom. I think he's, I think he has, he would deny this, but I think he has some of the prophet about him. Like if you really listen to what he's saying about grief and about time and aging and creativity, he's, he's become a real artistic hero of mine. And, uh, he, is unafraid to speak about the numinous and the tragic and the, uh, you know, uh, the, the, he, he's also not afraid of, of, of kind of religious imagery evoking that. Like, I just, I just find him to be so bracing his honesty and his humility. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying in my own way to be the kind of artist I would admire, right? Like, can I write about things that on the surface might be maybe not the most obvious, uh, things for us? Because that song, Joshua 4546, which closes volume one is like, it's quite a hopeful song and it's quite a, um, surrendered and accepting song. And I hope it has, it's a wise song, right? But it starts from a place of pain. And I think that, yeah, yeah. And I think that, um, all the good, uh, like all wisdom on some level is probably rooted in pain. And that's why the young, it's, it's rare for young people to be wise. That doesn't mean they can't be smart, but I think wisdom carries with it, um, some real wounding and some real pain. And when you are able to, you, you know, accept that and honor that and then turn around and share what you've learned. I think that, I, I don't know, that's kind of art I'm interested in. What is your relationship with the religious or the spiritual like at this point? I grew up, uh, I grew up Jewish and I went to a, like an Orthodox Jewish day school, even though my family wasn't super religious. Um, we, they were active in the synagogue, but I definitely grew up with, with, I think like a kind of old Testament punishing God. You know, the, the God that's watching me tallying, you know, it's with my friend, Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest who I think is so wise and wonderful, but he, he calls it the Santa Claus God, you know, who's been naughty, who's been nice. That's a, a point of, uh, I, I grew up Jewish, but I grew up reform, but that is a point of 
great overlap between the Jews and the Catholics. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, whenever you drop in with a Catholic, you're like, yeah, this wasn't so different, you know. Um, but I, I think I think when I discovered the theater, the theater became my god, and uh, the the empty theater theater was my cathedral, and 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 at some point, I think it was around the time I got How I Met Your Mother, and I got everything I thought I wanted, and I found myself in in some real despair that I started looking more deeply uh, into, into, you know, if happiness was possible, if it was sustainable. Um, I think I always, I always believed in the numinous and the unseen. I always felt like there was some sort of unseen order. And I've, I, I don't know to call, if I call that God, I just call it something. I, I, I know that I am in dialogue with something. I know that I never quite feel alone. I feel my life um, has had uh, a, a dimension of a, a blessing to it, you know, uh, not just good fortune around, you know, career and a roof over my head and all that. But like, you know, the people that have been in my life, the opportunities I've had, the, the teachers I've had. I got really into, you know, ayahuasca and psychedelics, and um, I was just looking for different ways to worship. I've been a longtime meditator. So, um, and then, and then weirdly, I, I came back to, uh, to, to our tradition. I came back to Judaism in some ways. My, my fiance is Jewish, which I was not, that was totally unexpected. There's something in the DNA. There's something in the lizard brain <laughs> that just like, it'll always be there. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't, I don't like tribalism and I don't like, you know, there's certain things I find odious around tribalism, but there's other things that I, you, you know, if, if, if my fiance and I have kids, it's not going to be a question if the kids are going to go to college, for instance, or like, like there's certain things culturally that I really appreciated about the way I grew up. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I like lighting the candles on Friday night. I like powering down the technology early and trying to have some sort of Sabbath. I think I, I've gone deep on a lot of different traditions, and I think there's wisdom in all of them. I'm I'm pretty spiritually omnivorous. It's been a few years, but I, I did ayahuasca actually in Brooklyn. I'm, I know a lot of people who do it the first time and then then just keep going back. You know, for me, I mean, partially because I'm a journalist and and the price of it keeps going up. But also, it was um, it was so emotionally heavy for me. I mean, I, you know, I'm one of those people, I basically cried for about six hours. Yeah. And I don't know if I would describe that as a pleasant experience. How'd you feel afterwards? I made the very stupid high person mistake of, I went to the bathroom and then just stared in a mirror. Oh yeah. The rookie mistake. Stay away it's from like, mirrors. Yeah. Yeah. It's like one thing to do it on Wien. It's another thing to do on ayahuasca, which is supposed to have like the effect of like really internalizing things. But as somebody yeah. who is like very very prone to anxiety my entire life. Like I don't want to go too much into my own brain. That's the exact reason why I actually had to stop smoking weed. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I did so much of it over like a decade or 12 years and it was really important for me to do that for some reason. And I, and I've looked back and said, why was I, why did I keep going back? Like, why was I heading to South America all the time? Like, why was I... Oh, you went to the source. Yeah, yeah. I did jungle. I did the Sacred Valley in Peru. I did a couple ceremonies at Machu Picchu, like in Machu Picchu. Like, I really did some 
weird, interesting things. And, you know, and, and I, to be honest, I, do, I didn't, I would not say that my experiences in Peru or Brazil or Colombia were notably stronger or more powerful or more wisdom dispensing than my ceremonies in Brooklyn or Hawaii or Mount Shasta. Like, I think the medicine works wherever you take it. But I've always been, I'm not physically rest, uh, reckless. Like, I'm not going to be jumping out of airplanes. I'm not, I, I'm just, that's not my thing. But I am, I have some psychic courage. Like, I'm, I'm up for experiences where I can actually, I'm actually wildly curious about my mind. And that doesn't mean there's not potholes and landmines that are a little scary, but I, there was something about ayahuasca. My friend, uh, uh, my, my fiance's dear friend is about to do it this weekend for the first time. And I said to her, you know, it's a benevolent plant. Like, just remember you're not being punished ever. You know, it's on your side. Yeah. Except for the throwing up, but beyond that. Yeah. But I even feel like there's a mercy in that, you know, like, yeah. Like, um, what my first purge in Brazil, I remember, feeling like I knew I was about to purge and I said, okay, something's coming up. It's from my mom's side of the family and it's generations old. Like it's, it goes back generations. And when I let go of it, it was so relieving, you know, it felt like a, a, a family kind of something had unwound. Trauma? Are you talking about like generational trauma? I guess I, I couldn't even say what it was. It didn't have, it didn't carry with it like a specific, I just knew it was from like, this kind of matrilineal uh, thing. And then it went back a long time. And that's part of the mystery of it. I don't, you're not going to know everything. As you're describing it now, it sounds like to a certain extent, you're maybe past that point in your life. I haven't done it for a couple of years. Uh, I work with other, you know, medicines. I'm, I'm a little less interested in the like super dramatic, forget my first and last name kind of experience. I'm, I'm much more interested in like, heart openers or even just like mushrooms with some friends, you know, where you can just be lighthearted and, and, you know, insightful when necessary. But I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I like going deep and I like getting introspective and I like, like lightheartedness and joy. Like I, I, I want to also honor those experiences. Cause I, I, you know, life is not one thing. Like I, I, it's it's tragic it's hilarious it's annoying it's fascinating you know and psychedelics are all those things to me and i suppose ego death is also a kind of death as we're talking yeah and that's the scariest one you know that's that's the hardest one i don't i think ego death is harder than body death and i think that when we're facing body death the thing that's really scaring us is that death of the ego that's the letting go I suspect, and this is just a suspicion, but like, I suspect once the ego has been let go of, the body death is not all that harrowing. I do think that it is something that people do seek out when they're doing psychedelics, that people actually would like that, would like the feeling of, of letting go. But you're right, it is scary. Yeah, and you know, the, the, the psilocybin, you know, Johns Hopkins, you know, uh, experiments with, with terminally ill cancer patients who are just dealing with so much anxiety about, about mortality. And when they have this experience, this, this numinous kind of ego dissolving experience, they just almost uniformly, it seems come back and say, I'm okay. 
like I'm okay. I'm like like my I'm I'm okay if I go away. I know that I'm bigger than this. I know I'm not really going anywhere, even though my body's going away. It's fascinating stuff. The fact that mortality really did, in various ways, make it onto the record is that is there a sense in which that's a, a direct outgrowth of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say yes, even though I, I didn't think of it directly, but. A good chunk of these songs were written in the first year or two of the pandemic. So I think that um, even a song like I Will Wait For You, which is a real, you know, folky love song on, on volume one, you know, it ends. It's, it's really about loving someone through anxiety and depression, but it ends with a with some death imagery. Um, I think that you know, the, the, the George Floyd protests, the, the pandemic, the, it was such a provocative time. And, and, uh, you know, for the first eight months of it, seven months of it, I was pretty alone. Um, but I was really, it was pretty, it was quite a fertile, uh, creative period for me. So I would say, yeah, I would say, yeah, that, that, that came into play. When you say loving someone through anxiety, depression, do you mean their anxiety, depression or yours? Yeah. In that, in this instance, it's theirs. For reasons I, I mentioned earlier, I always feel like I'm on the other side of that. Um, how 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 do you cope with that? I, I, especially since you know, speaking of being solitary, I mean, certainly the way that my depression manifests itself is is me just wanting to be completely alone. And yeah, when you're in a relationship with somebody, you can feel shut out by their isolating. I love this person. I want to give this person space and time, but at a certain point it's like, well, it's hard. Like, are you, are you avoiding me? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, I've not dated, um, like a seriously depressed person, but I'd say every woman I've been in love with has run and pretty anxious. Uh, you know, you'd have to talk to my therapist about why that's the case, but, um, I'm pretty good at, at, at dealing with anxious people. Like I, I, I have my own anxiety, but when I'm faced with someone's more intense anxiety, I get pretty calm. Like, like I, I adapt. I I wouldn't say I run depressive, but I have, as you can probably guess, like I have somewhat of a melancholy streak, you know, I can get just sad about the world or about, you know, a friend in, uh, I was doing theater with years ago, like in college, she said I was like a, like a real life Chekhov character, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, I have like a kind of Russian melancholy about me and I kind of, you know, bemoan certain things or wonder what it's all about. But that's all, you know, if, if, if you have an outlet for that, which I do, that's all pretty interesting stuff, um, even though it can be hard to live with. Having sp- spoken with you before and, and having read some of some interviews with you, that to a certain extent, that, that melancholia manifested itself during How I Met Your Mother, which it's, it's, it's such a hard thing for the brain to reconcile because obviously like you're doing you're at the height of this thing. You're doing this thing, you know, long running popular show on network television, this thing that so many people would kill for and wondering why you can't be happy. 
I mean, it's hard when you're when you're talking about you know nine years or a decade of your life. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because ten years is ten years, and you're gonna you're gonna be up, you're gonna be down, you're gonna. I mean, some of my favorite experiences were were during that time. Some of my deepest friendships were born of that time. Some of my greatest artistic, uh, you know, liberation, you know, uh, joys were were during that time. And many days of that show uh, were hilarious and lovely. But what I think I what I've maybe overstated in some of these interviews is that. Um, some of it was really hard and it was hard because you get what you thought you wanted and it didn't solve the thing. It didn't solve the like hole in your chest. Right. And in fact, I felt the hole widen because I didn't have the kind of morphine drip of, of sustaining hope that, that, Oh, what if one day when I get this, I'll be happy. And I, and I think it's true. You know, when people have, my dad was a lawyer for many years and, he said there was something in their firm, they called it post-partner depression. You know, you make partner, you work for so many years and you get the thing and you just have to, um, you have to look, you have to deal with the fact that like, you're still you, you're still, this didn't magically take away your anxieties or your, uh, your fears. Um, nothing really does. And I, and I think I had to live through all that to, figure out why I was doing this. Like, why was I an actor? What, what was I hoping to get? You know, certainly like, I remember Ben said something to me that really struck me. He said, if you are in a stadium full of people who are cheering for you and screaming your name and loving you, and you don't like yourself, those cheers will be painful for you. They will be absolutely painful. So, I think a lot of people like write and talk about failure or about how to achieve success, but very few people talk about what it feels like when you're there. I don't know if you read Steve Martin's book, Born Standing Up, about his early... It's been a decade, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I, I remember that moment where he he's one of the first like rock star comedians. He's playing stadiums and just the juxtaposition towards, you know, 40,000 people screaming and laughing and then an hour later being in the hotel room, dead silent alone. And the, uh, the acute loneliness that, 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 that feels the, when those are juxtaposed together. I think, I think that if you, if you, if, if you're talking to people who are really honest, it's like success is thrilling. It's fun. It's scary. It's crazy making. And it, you you'll much like a much like a relationship like a good relationship you'll have to confront parts of yourself that are maybe not your favorite parts of yourself i think the reason why people don't talk about it is because who wants to hear a super successful person talking about how miserable they are yeah but then you you know they od or they you know check themselves into treatment like they, they have to suffer quietly because we haven't created a culture or a container where people can be honest about um all this stuff i mean i think the the myth in america is so woven into the fabric of this country that like when you get this you will you know we're inundated with advertisements and with the promise of of a better life if you only had this if you only had that and uh you, you know as far as i can tell Making art, uh, having community and food with people you love, 
being of service to people who are hurting and in need. Like those are the things that really give you some joy. The other stuff, I don't know. They're, they're, I remember when I was a kid, I wanted this like robot, this like crappy robot that served you drinks on a tray. Was that the Radio Shack robot? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was dying for this thing and I was begging my parents and they finally got it for me. And I remember playing with it for like maybe 10 minutes and being like, this thing sucks. I don't care about it anymore. And it just sat in my room for years, you know, and it, and it was a good lesson for me because the stuff we think we want, like we metabolize it so quickly and then we have to get more and better and newer. Um, and it's just endless and it's, it's actually quite depressing. So I've just tried to align myself with things that really, that I have found are sustainable and nourishing and matter. And none of those things are, are matter. Like none of those things are material. I mean, I like, I, we bought an apartment in Brooklyn and I love it, but I stopped noticing it after a while. Right. It's just the place we live. The other aspect of what you're talking about is that nothing success never looks like you think it is going to look. And there are always going to be people who are more successful. And you fall into that trap of wondering why somebody got that job or, you know, when, when you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, comparison is a real demon, you know? So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the experience of whatever despair was associated with that. And, and again, I don't, I don't want to lay it at the foot of the show because that show changed my life in so many wonderful ways. And, you know, so many of the people that I met were and continue to be very special to me. So I've just had to refine what, uh, what matters to me, you know, and uh, getting to tell stories with music, like this matters to me, you know, this record matters to me getting to have conversations like this, like matter. I just want to connect it at pretty deep levels and, and, uh, and hear where people are at and, and, you know, hopefully offer them something that they can take with them. You rhetorically ask the question of, of why, why am I an actor? You know, the question that you had to answer. Um, we, I, I think we did a pretty good job discussing why you're a musician, but what, what keeps bringing you back to acting? I'm really interested in people. Like I'm, I'm curious about people. I find still when I'm watching something and I see some, something really honest and funny and authentic, it still is thrilling. I like stories. Like I, I, you know, I remember my dad got me that Edith Hamilton mythology book. You know, I was really into, and even at my Hebrew day school, like I loved the stories in the Torah and I love mythology. I, I continue to be fascinated by archetypes and, and I went to NYU and I studied with, with Zelda Fitchandler, who was this, you know, towering figure in the American theater. And she talked about, you know, actors are doing a real service in this, in this culture, because a lot of people cannot have the emotions that we have. They need us to do it for them. You know, they need to see us so they can have the catharsis because they're not going to be able to do it for themselves. And she imbued in us this kind of holy um, sense of mission 
or purpose. And that's never really left me, you know. I mean, sometimes I think it's ridiculous and some projects are obviously better than others. I'm about to do a play at the Public Theater in the spring that I'm completely obsessed with and think is so scary and wonderful and worthwhile. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that. But it's just changed, you know. You you've got to renegotiate every decade, I'd say why you're doing what you're doing. I don't know if even just actors, but I'm sure journalists have to do that. You know, why, why you started doing it is not why you're still doing it. I'm alone. What a pity. I won't be soon in New York City. When I see you, please permit me.